Disc 1987. The Revolution Confirmed When the 1987 election campaign began, Thatcher had a clear idea about what her third administration would do. Just like Tony Blair later, she wanted more choice for the users of state services. There would be independent state schools outside the control of local councillors, called grant-maintained schools. In the health service, though it was barely mentioned in the manifesto, she wanted money to follow the patient. Tenants would be given more rights. The basic rate of income tax would be cut. She would finally sort out local government, ending the rates and bringing in a tax with bite. On paper, the programme seemed coherent, which was more than could be said for the management of the Tory campaign itself. Just as Kinnock's Labour team had achieved a rare harmony and discipline, Conservative central office was racked by hissy fits and screaming catfights between politicians and admen. The leaderine began to snap at her former favourite, the carnivorous Chingford skinhead Norman Tebbit, now party chairman. At one point in the campaign, when the Labour leader seemed to have closed the gap to just four points, and when Mrs Thatcher herself was performing badly, hit by agonising toothache, the Tories had a real panic, wobbly Thursday. That dreadful Kinnock, it seemed, was having a better campaign than she was. He sailed around, surrounded by admiring crowds, young people, nurses, waving and smiling, and little worried by the press, while she was having a horrid time. What was going on? In the event, the Conservatives need not have worried at all, despite a last-minute BBC prediction of a hung Parliament and a late surge of Labour self-belief, they romped home. The Tories had an overall majority of 101 seats, almost exactly the share of the vote, 42%, they had enjoyed after the Labour catastrophe of 1983. Labour had made just 20 net gains. At home in his Welsh constituency, despairing, Kinnock punched the wall. His police protection officer, who had been much moved by some of the great Kinnock speeches he had witnessed in the past three weeks, offered words of comfort. Don't worry, sir. It could have been worse. Kinnock is said to have swivelled round towards him, eyes narrowed, looking suddenly dangerous. Worse? Could have been worse? Just tell me, how could it have been worse? The police officer blandly replied, Well, sir, in the old days, they'd have chopped your head off. Afterwards, surveying the wreckage of their hopes, Kinnock and his team won plaudits from the press for the brilliance, verve and professionalism of their campaign. It had been transformed from the shambles of only four years earlier. At the same time, the Conservatives had been flat-footed and unsure of themselves compared to their previous two elections, which only goes to show that the detail of electioneering, which obsesses Westminster politicians, is perhaps less important than they think. And what of the SDP Liberal Alliance, the big new idea of 80s politics? They were out of puff. They had been floundering in the polls for some time, caught between Kinnock's modest Labour revival and Thatcher's continuing popularity with a large and solid minority of voters. Their gamble was that Labour was dying, and it had failed. The public had enjoyed robust media mockery of the competing David Steele-David Owen dual leadership as much as the leadership itself. Though Owen was popularly seen as the dominant partner, his Social Democrats had a woeful election, seeing their eight MPs reduced to five and losing Roy Jenkins in the process, a tribulation Owen bore with fortitude. The SDP would soon begin to fall apart, though an Owenite rump party limped on for a while after the rest merged with the Liberals. Good PR, good labelling, goodwill, none of it had been good enough. 
In 1987, Thatcher had not created the country she dreamed of, but she could argue that she had won a third consecutive victory on the back of ideas, not on the back of envelopes. The Year of Hubris, 1988, and Why We Still Live There For true believers, the story of Margaret Thatcher's third and last administration can be summed up in the single word, betrayal. Her hopes of a free market Europe were betrayed by the Continentals, abetted by her own treacherous foreign office. Her achievements in bringing down inflation were betrayed by her Chancellor, Nigel Lawson. Finally, she was betrayed directly, treachery with a smile on its face. When her cabinet ministers turned on her and forced her to resign on the 20th of November 1990. The British Revolution was sold out by faint hearts, its great leader exiled to an executive home in South London, and glory departed from the earth. But there is another word that sums up the story better, not betrayal, but hubris. In the late 80s, the Thatcher Revolution overreached itself. The inflationary boom happened because of the expansion of credit and a belief among ministers that, somehow, the old laws of economics had been abolished. Britain was now in a virtuous, endless upward spiral of increasing prosperity. Across the welfare state, swaggering, high-handed centralism continued on steroids, ever grander. Near the end, Thatcher's fall was triggered by a disastrous policy for local taxation, whose blatant unfairness was never properly considered by ministers, as if it did not really matter. And by the end, her own brutal rudeness to those around her left her almost friendless. She had been in power too long. The year after the election, 1988, was the real year of hubris. The Thatcher government began laying about it with a frenzy unmatched before or since, flaying independent institutions and bullying the professions as if it was a short-tempered teacher and they were uppity children. England's senior judges came under tighter new political control. They would hit back. University lecturers lost the academic tenure they had enjoyed since the days when students arrived by ox cart making jokes in Latin. In Kenneth Baker's Great Education Reform Bill, or Jir Bill, of that year, Whitehall grabbed direct control over the running of school curriculums, creating a vast new state bureaucracy to dictate what should be taught, when and how, and then to monitor the results. Teachers could do nothing. The Cabinet debated the detail of maths courses. Mrs Thatcher spent much of her own time worrying about the teaching of history. It happened at a time when education ministers were complaining bitterly in private about the appalling quality of talent, not among teachers, but civil servants, the very people they were handing more power to. A former and penitent education secretary from the age of comprehensives, Thatcher believed schooling was now a national disgrace. She wanted to scupper trendy lefty teachers by giving parents, generally traditionalist, more choice about which school to choose. That meant establishing Whitehall-controlled independent state schools specialising in technical subjects, city technology colleges. It also meant persuading other schools to opt out of local authority control to become grant-maintained, rewarded with a small bribe. Neither idea worked. Only a small number of highly costly CTCs ever opened, and the few schools who opted out found they had opted in to tight Treasury and Department of Education control. 
Later, under John Major's government, the inevitable extension of central financial control would produce yet another Whitehall-style organisation, though, in fact, based in York, the Funding Agency for Schools. It was meant to be able to close schools, open schools, expand them, change their character and cut their scale, all without reference to local wishes. It was described by a right-wing think tank as having an extraordinary range of dictatorial powers, giving the Education Secretary authority similar to Henry VIII's dissolution commissioners. It was the same pattern in health. In 1988, too, the new Health Secretary, Kenneth Clark, pressed ahead with a system of money following the patient, a monopoly board version of the market in which hospitals sold their services and local doctors, on behalf of the ill, bought them. The market was not real, of course, because the hospitals could not go out of business and the doctors, with a limited range of hospitals to choose from, could hardly withhold their money and refuse to buy their patients a heart bypass or hip replacement. The initial theory was perfectly intelligent. It was an attempt to bring private sector-like behaviour into the health service, a new regime of efficiency and tight budgeting. It looked enough like a real market to cause a huge and lengthy revolt by doctors and patients' groups. They were worrying about the wrong problem. Because the government did not really trust local people to work together to improve the health service, the Treasury seized control of budgets and contracts and to administer the system, nearly 500 National Health Service Trusts were formed. Apparently autonomous, but staffed by failed party candidates, ex-councillors and party donors. Any involvement by elected local representatives was brutally terminated. Mrs Thatcher later wrote, As with our education reforms, we wanted all hospitals to have greater responsibility for their affairs, and the self-governing hospitals to be virtually independent. But as with her education reforms, the real effect was to create a new bureaucracy overseeing a regiment of quangos. Every detail of the internal market contracts was set down from the centre, from pay to borrowing to staffing. The rhetoric of choice in practice meant an incompetent dictatorship of bills, contracts and instructions. Those who could voted with their checkbooks. Between 1980 and 1990, the number of people covered by the private health insurance company, Bupa, nearly doubled, from 3.5 million to a little under 7 million. It wasn't only salaried, professional people with health insurance written into their contracts who paid for private medicine. By the late 80s, private hospitals had queues of tattooed men in jeans waiting to be seen, cash in hand. Hubris about what the state can and cannot do was found everywhere. Training may be unglamorous, but it is crucial to any modern economy. Here, too, a web of unelected bodies was spun, dispersing Treasury money according to Whitehall rules. The same happened in housing, which Thatcher said was more serious a matter even than health and education at the time, and which in 1988 saw the establishment of unelected housing action trusts to take over the old responsibility of local authorities for providing cheap homes. Nearly 20 years after most of these bodies began work, there is still a puzzle here. Mrs Thatcher said she was trying to pull the state off people's backs. In the end, that was the point of her. She thought so too. In her memoirs, she wrote of her third government, the root cause of our contemporary social problems was that the state had been doing too much. So why did she let it bustle around doing more and more? Simon Jenkins concluded that her most potent legacy was potency itself.
The more a leader is self-certain, the more there is in the world around her that she wants to change, and the fewer other people she can trust. That means taking more powers, letting other institutions and smaller-scale leaders find their own way through a busy world goes for a burden. The institutions most hurt were local councils. Under our constitution, local government is defenceless against a prime minister with a secure parliamentary majority and a loyal cabinet. So. It has been hacked away. It is time to address the moment when this program of crushing alternative centres of power came so badly unstuck it destroyed the Lady Lenin of the free market herself. Enter the peasants with Bill Hooks. Margaret Thatcher would say the poll tax was actually an attempt to save local government. Like schools, hospitals, and housing, councils had been subject to a grisly torture chamber full of pincers, bits, whips, and flails as ministers tried to stop them spending money or raising it, except as Whitehall wished. Since the war, local government had been spending more, but the amount of money it raised independently came from a relatively narrow base of people, some fourteen million property owners. Thatcher had been prodded by Edward Heath into promising to replace this tax, the rates, as early as 1974, but nobody had come up with a plausible and popular-sounding alternative. She intensely disliked rates, regarding them as a tax on self-improvement and inherently unconservative. Yet in government, the problem nagged away at her. There was a malign dynamic at work. The more powers government took away from local councils, the less councils mattered, and the more local elections were used merely as giant referendums on central government—a cost-free protest vote. Once local elections were not national news; they were about who was best to run towns and counties. In the late sixties and seventies, they became national news—a regular referendum in which the prime minister was applauded or slapped. It was generally the latter. Under Margaret Thatcher, the Tories lost swathes of local councils in bloody electoral defeats, again and again. The result was more socialist councils, mistrusted even more by central government, which therefore, as we have seen, took still more powers away from them, which made the elections even less relevant and fueled more protest voting, and so on. If this was not bad enough. Then it was clear to Thatcher and her ministers that socialist councils were pursuing expensive hard left policies, partly because so few of the local voters were ratepayers. Too many could vote for high spending councils without feeling any personal pinch. One way of cutting the knot would be to make all those who voted for local councils pay towards their cost. This was the origin of the poll tax, or community charge, as it was officially known—a single flat tax for everyone. It would mean lower bills for many homeowners, and it would make local councils more responsive to their voters. On the other hand, it would mean a new tax for approximately 20 million people, which would be regressive. The poorest in the land would pay as much as the richest. This broke a principle which stretched back much further than the post-war consensus. The idea had been knocking around for some years before it was picked up by the government and subjected to a long and intense internal debate. Which we shall skip, except to note that not everyone thought it was a good idea. The poll tax was sold to Mrs. Thatcher by her Environment Secretary Kenneth Baker at a seminar at Chequers in 1985, along with the nationalisation of the business rate. Nigel Lawson tried very hard to argue the Prime Minister out of it, telling her it would be completely unworkable and politically catastrophic. 
he was outgunned by a stream of lady-pleasers keen to prove him wrong. And indeed, the tax was being discussed at the very same cabinet meeting Heseltine stalked out of during the Westland affair. It might have been less of a disaster, it might even have been successful, had it been brought in very slowly over ten years as first mooted, or four, as was then planned. But at the 1987 Tory conference, there was a collective rush of blood to the head. Intoxicated by the bold simplicity of the thing, party members urged Thatcher to bring it in at once. Idiotically, she agreed. There was, to be fair, a reason for hurry. Rates, like the modern council tax, depended on the relative value of houses across Britain, which changed with fashion and home improvement. Every so often, therefore, there had to be a general revaluation to keep the tax working. Yet, each revaluation meant higher rates bills for millions of homeowners and businesses, and governments tended to try to put them off. In Scotland, a CRISPR law did not allow this. There, a rates revaluation had finally happened and caused political mayhem. It gave English ministers a nasty glimpse of what was in store for them, too, eventually. Scottish ministers begged Thatcher to be allowed the poll tax first. They were given their head. Exemptions were to be made for the unemployed and low-paid, but an attempt by wisely nervous Tory MPs to divide the tax into three bands so that it bore some relation to people's ability to pay was brushed aside despite a huge parliamentary rebellion. When the tax was duly introduced in Scotland, as we shall see later, it caused chaos and widespread protest. In England, the likely price of the average poll tax kept rising, Panicking ministers produced expensive schemes to cap it and to create more generous exemptions, undermining the whole point. Capping the tax would remove local accountability, and the more exemptions, the less pressure on councils from their voters. Yet even Thatcher began to grow alarmed as she was told that well over 80% of people would be paying more. On the 31st of March 1990, the day before the poll tax was due to take effect in England and Wales, there was a massive demonstration against it, which ended with a riot in Trafalgar Square. Scaffolding was ripped apart and used to throw at mounted police. Cars were set on fire. Shops smashed. More than 300 people were arrested, and 400 policemen hurt. Thatcher dismissed it as mere wickedness. More than a riot, though, it was the growing swell of protest by middle-class, normally law-abiding voters, who insisted they simply would not pay it, that shook her cabinet. As the Conservatives' ratings slumped in the country, Tory MPs who had opposed the tax, including Michael Heseltine's key organiser, Michael Mates, began to ask their colleagues whether it was not now time that she was removed from power. The Final Curtain The killing of Margaret Thatcher's political career has a dark luster about it, like something from a book of old stories. She had conducted her premiership with a sense of vivid and immediate self-dramatisation, the heroine of peace and war, fighting pitched battles in coalfields and on the streets, word-punching her way through triumphal conferences, haranguing rival leaders, always with a sense that history was being freshly minted day by day. This is why so many insults levelled at her tended to twist into unintended compliments. The Iron Lady, La Passionara of Privilege, she who must be obeyed, the Leaderine the Blessed Margaret, even the great she-elephant. Reflected in her bloodied breastplate, the eighties glowed more luridly than any other modern decade, flashing gold with the city's new wealth, sunny as the Soviets collapsed, livid in its confrontations and cruelty nearer to home. 
She had no sense of her own limits. The world was made anew. Her fall lived up in every way to her record. When a great leader topples, poetry requires that her personal failings bring her down. The story insists it must be more than a trip on the carpet, weariness or age. And this story's ending lives up to its earlier scenes. There were several powder trails that led towards the final explosion. One was the poll tax. Another was economic policy and Europe, which had become almost the same thing. We have seen how Lawson wanted to tie the pound to the anti-inflationary expertise and reputation of the West German Central Bank, shadowing the Deutschmark in the European exchange rate mechanism. In effect, he was looking for somewhere firm to plant down policy in the queasy morass of the new global financial free-for-all. Thatcher disagreed. She thought currencies should float freely, aerial to his Caliban. She also knew that the ERM was intended one day to lead to a single European currency, part of the European Commission President Jacques Delors' plan for a freshly buttressed European federal state. Lawson, dogged, bull-like, ignored her and shadowed the German currency anyway, a fact somehow both denied yet generally known. Thatcher read about it in the newspapers. When the cost of Lawson's policy became excessive, she finally ordered him to stop. He grumpily agreed, but the two of them stopped talking. Bruges in Belgium is a pretty town. Thanks to the Channel Tunnel and cheap flights, British people flock there for romance, beer, art and chocolate. When Margaret Thatcher rode into town in 1988, year of hubris, none of these things was on her agenda. She had come to make her definitive speech against the federalism now openly advancing towards her. The Foreign Office had tried to soften her message. She had promptly pulled out her pen and written the barbs and thorns back in again. She had not, she informed her audience, successfully rolled back the frontiers of the state in Britain, a claim already anatomized, only to see them reimposed at a European level, with a European superstate exercising a new level of dominance from Brussels. There was much else besides. Her bluntness much offended continental politicians and the foreign secretary, Sir Geoffrey Howe. Next, she reappointed as her economic adviser a lugubrious and outspoken monetarist academic, Sir Alan Walters, who was contemptuous of Lawson's exchange rate policy and said so repeatedly. Thus, she was taking on Howe and Lawson, the two chancellors of her revolutionary years, together. A dangerous split was becoming evident at the top of government. She seemed not to care, biffing Howe about as carelessly as she always had. Nor was anyone much convinced when she told the world she fully, gladly, joyfully, unequivocally, generously, fully, 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 fully supported Lawson as her Chancellor. People said she had no sense of humour. They were wrong. It was just a slightly strange one. Then Jacques Delors, the wry and determined French socialist, re-entered the story with his fleshed-out plan for economic and monetary union, which would end with the single currency, the euro. To get there, all EU members would start by putting their national currencies into the ERM, which would draw them increasingly tightly together, just what Lawson and Howe wanted, and just what Thatcher did not. Howe and Lawson, pinky and perky, ganged up. They told her she must announce that Britain would soon join the ERM, even if she left the single currency itself to one side for the time. She wriggled, then fought back. On the eve of a summit in Madrid, where Britain had to announce her view, the two of them visited her in private, had a blazing row, 
and threatened to resign together if she did not give way. Truculently, she did, and the crisis passed. But she was merely waiting. Four weeks after the summit, in July 1989, Thatcher hit back. She unleashed a major cabinet reshuffle, compared at the time to Macmillan's Night of the Long Knives in 1962. Howe was demoted to being leader of the Commons. She reluctantly allowed him the face-saving title of Deputy Prime Minister, a concession rather diminished when her press officer, Bernard Ingham, instantly told journalists it was a bit of a non-job. Howe was replaced by the relatively unknown John Major, the former Chief Secretary. Lawson survived only because the economy was weakening, and to lose him was thought too dangerous just then. So the drama advanced. The atmosphere in the Commons was a combustible mix of sulphur and adrenaline. Lawson was having a bad time on all sides, including from the Labour Shadow Chancellor, John Smith. When Thatcher's adviser, Walters, had another pop at his ERM policy, he decided enough was enough and resigned on the 26th of October, telling the Prime Minister she should treat her ministers better. She pretended to have no idea what he was on about. Lawson was replaced by the still relatively unknown John Major, who was having an interesting autumn. Around them all, the world was changing. A few days after these events, East Germany announced the opening of the border to the West, and joyous Berliners began hacking their wall to pieces. Then the Communist fell in Czechoslovakia. Then the Romanian dictator Ceausescu was dragged from power. A few weeks after that, in February 1990, Nelson Mandela, a man she had once denounced as a terrorist, was released, to global acclaim. In the middle of all this, the Commons had witnessed an event which seemed the opposite of historic. Thatcher had been challenged as leader of the Conservative Party by Sir Anthony Mayer, an obscure, elderly pro-European backbencher, much mocked as the stalking donkey. It was a little like Ronnie Corbett challenging Mike Tyson to a punch-up. Yet, ominously for Thatcher, when the vote was held, sixty Tory MPs either voted donkey or abstained. In the shadows, prowling through conservative associations and the corridors of Westminster, was a more dangerous creature. Michael Heseltine, no donkey, self-expelled from the Thatcher cabinet four years earlier, was looking uncommonly chipper. Tory MPs whimpered to him about the trouble they were in with the poll tax. He sympathised trying neither to lick his lips nor sharpen his claws, too, obviously. One by one, the inner core of true Thatcherites fell back. Her bone-dry environment secretary, Nicholas Ridley, had to resign after being rude about the Germans in a magazine interview, given piquantly to Lawson's son, Dominic. John Major turned out to be worryingly pro-European after all. Ian Gow, one of her closest associates, though no longer in the government, was murdered by an IRA bomb at his home. Abroad, great world events continued to stalk the last days of Margaret Thatcher's premiership. Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, and she urged President George Bush, the elder, towards what would become the first Gulf War. Don't wobble, George. There was another summit in Rome, and further pressure on the Delors plan. Again, Thatcher felt herself being pushed and dragged towards a federal scheme. She vented her contempt and anger in the Commons, shredding the proposals with the words, No, no, no! And at this point, the one person who could never have been expected to finish her off did so. For years, Geoffrey Howe had absorbed her slights, her impatience, her mockery, her snarls. He had taken it all with the rubbery fatalism of the battered husband who will never leave. Now, observing her flaming anti-Brussels crusade, 
he decided he had had enough. She probably tipped him over the edge by turning on him savagely and unfairly over some legislation that was not ready, but he had decided to go. On the 13th of November, 1990, he stood up rather lugubriously in the House of Commons and did her in. His resignation statement was designed to answer the story put around by number 10 that he had gone over nothing much at all. To a packed chamber, he revealed that Lawson and he had threatened to resign together the previous year and accused her of sending her ministers to negotiate in Brussels like a cricket team going to the crease, having first broken their bats in the changing room. She was wrong over Europe, he insisted, and then threw the door open to the further leadership challenge that was now inevitable. The time has come for others to consider their own response to the tragic conflict of loyalties with which I myself have wrestled for perhaps too long. Television cameras had just been allowed into the commons. Across the country, people could watch how, with Nigel Lawson nodding behind him, could see Heseltine's studied icy calm and observe the white-faced reaction of the Prime Minister herself. The next day, Heseltine announced he would stand against her as leader. She told the Times that he was a socialist at heart, someone whose philosophy at its extreme end had just been defeated in the Soviet Union. She would see him off, of course. The balloting system for Tory MPs required her to beat Heseltine by winning both a clear majority of the parliamentary party and being 15% ahead of him in votes cast. At a summit in Paris, surrounded by many old enemies, she heard that she had missed the second hurdle by four votes. There would be a second ballot. As one of the few people in public life who could swarm all by herself, she swarmed out of the summit, somehow found a BBC microphone, and announced that though disappointed, she would fight on. Then she returned with heroic sang-froid to sit through a ballet with the other leaders, who were pleasant enough to her face. While she watched the ballet, Tory MPs were dancing through Westminster in anger or delight. It was a night of softening support and hardening hearts. Many key Thatcherites believed she was finished, and feared that if she fought again, Heseltine would beat her. This would tear the party in two. It would be better for her to withdraw and let someone else assassinate the assassin. Even then, had she been in London throughout the crisis and summoned her cabinet together to back her, she might have pulled it off. But by the time she was back and taking advice from her whips, the news was bleak. In what was probably a tactical mistake, she decided to see her cabinet one by one in her Commons office. Douglas Hurd and John Major had already given her their reluctant agreement to nominate her for the next round of voting, but the message from most of the rest of her ministers was strangely uniform. They would personally back her if she was determined to fight, but, frankly, she would lose. That would mean Heseltine. Better, Prime Minister, to stand aside and free Major and Heard from their promises of support. Later she was wryly amusing about the process. It looked very much as if most of them had agreed the line beforehand. The whips concurred. The Cabinet were going through the motions of supporting her if she insisted, but they did not mean it, or mean her to believe it. She had lost them. Only a few ultras, mostly outside the Cabinet, were sincerely urging her to continue the struggle. One was that wicked diarist and right-wing maverick Alan Clark, who told her to fight on at all costs. Unfortunately, he went on to argue that I should fight on even though I was bound to lose, because it was better to go down in a blaze of glorious defeat than to go gentle into that good night. Since I had no particular fondness for Wagnerian endings, 
This lifted my spirits only briefly. So it was over. In their various ways, her cabinet were too tired to support her any longer, and her MPs were too scared of the electoral vengeance to be wreaked after the poll tax. She returned to Downing Street, conferred with Dennis, slept on it, and then announced to her cabinet secretary at 7.30 the next morning that she had decided to resign. She held an uncomfortable cabinet meeting with those she believed had betrayed her, saw the Queen, phoned other world leaders, and then finished with one final, splendid Commons performance. I'm enjoying this! Vigorously defending her record. Come back, cried one emotional Tory MP. When Margaret Thatcher left Downing Street for the last time, in tears, she already knew that she had successfully completed a final political campaign, which was to ensure that she was replaced as Prime Minister by John Major, rather than Michael Heseltine. She had rallied support for him by phone among her closest supporters. They felt he had not been quite supportive enough. She also harboured private doubts. So ended the most extraordinary and nation-changing premiership of modern British history. Part 5 Nippy Metro People Britain from 1990 Thatcher's children? By the time she left office, only a minority were true believers. Most would have voted her out had her cabinet ministers not beaten them to it. History is harshest to a leader just as they fall. She had been a strident presence for so long that many who had first welcomed her as a gust of fresh air now felt harried. Those who wanted a quieter leader were about to get one. Yet most people had in the end done well under her, not just the yuppies and Essex boys, but also her snidest middle-class critics. Britons were on average much wealthier than they had been at the end of the 70s. The country was enjoying bigger cars, a far wider range of holidays, better food, a wider choice of television channels, home videos, and the first slew of gadgets from the computer age. Yet this was not quite the Britain of today. More people smoked. The idea of smoke-free public areas or smoking bans in offices and restaurants was lampooned as a weird Californian innovation that would never come here. People seen talking to themselves with a wire dangling from one ear would have been considered worryingly disturbed. There were no Starbucks. Coffee shops were still mainly locally owned places, selling instant coffee, tea, fried food or cakes. Lunch had been under threat for some years in the city, and the days of midday drinking were beginning to die in other professions too. The chic sandwich bar had begun to spread since the early 80s, when BLTs, avocado and blue cheese began to be regularly offered, alongside the traditional fillings of cheese, ham and egg. At a by-election outside Liverpool in 1986, a Labour activist had allegedly pointed to the mushy peas in a local chip shop and asked for some of the avocado dip, too. It was a story, perhaps an urban myth, much retold as symbolising the gap between real Britain and the new metropolitan Britain of the South. The habit of urbanites carrying bottled water wherever they went had not yet taken off, though meaningless corporate language was already sullying business life. The ubiquitous PowerPoint presentation was in its infancy. Passengers rather than customers travelled on British rail trains with the double arrow symbol which had been familiar since 1965. On the roads were plenty of flashy Ford Sierras, Austin Montegos and nippy metros. For a wealthy country, the mood was uneasy. An old jibe, public affluence, public squalor. 
was much heard. The most immediate worry was economic as the hangover effects of the Lawson boom began to throb. Inflation was rising towards double figures, interest rates were at 14%, and unemployment was heading towards 2 million. Over the next four years, a serious white-collar recession was to hit Britain, particularly in the South, where house prices would fall by a quarter. An estimated 1.8 million people found that their homes were worth less than the money they had borrowed to buy them in the heady, easy-credit 80s. During 1991 alone, more than 75,000 families would have their homes repossessed. With hindsight, it is generally accepted that the Thatcher Revolution reshaped the country's economy and prepared Britain well for the new age of globalisation waiting in the wings. But in 1990, it did not feel quite like that. There were other changes, too. The British were fewer than they are today. The population was smaller by at least three million souls. Also, the ethnic mix of the country was simpler. Of the roughly three million non-white British, the largest group were Indian, 840,000, Black Caribbean, 500,000, and Pakistani, 476,000. Pretty much what an extrapolation from the 70s would have predicted. No serious concern was expressed politically about whether Muslims could fully integrate. In the interests of keeping an eye on troublemakers and maintaining Britain's traditions of tolerance, a number of the most radical Islamic militants on the run from their own countries had been given safe haven in London. The largest white migrant group was from Ireland, which was still relatively poor. Any Poles or Russians in Britain were diplomats or refugees from communism. The term bogus asylum seeker would have met with a puzzled frown. Looking to east or west, Britain was far less penetrated by overseas culture and people than she would soon become. Britain was also about to go to war again as the junior partner to the Americans in the first Gulf conflict, which freed Kuwait from Saddam Hussein's invasion and immolated the Iraqi army's Republican Guard. Despite British forces losing lives and the use by Saddam of human shields, the war generated nothing like the controversy of the later Iraq war. It was widely seen as a necessary act of international retribution against a particularly horrible dictator. After the controversies and alarms of the Thatcher years, foreign affairs generated less heat, except for the great issue of European federalism. There was a real sense of optimism caused by the end of the Cold War, which had resulted in the deaths of up to 40 million people around the world and involved no fewer than 150 smaller conflicts. At last, perhaps, the West could relax. Politicians and journalists talked excitedly of the coming peace dividend and the end of the surveillance and espionage secret state that had been needed for so long. The only present threat to British security was the provisional IRA, which would continue its attacks with ferocity and cunning for some years to come. They would hit Downing Street with a triple mortar attack on a snowy day in February 1991, coming close to killing the Prime Minister and the top team of ministers and officials directing the Gulf War. Environmental worries were present too, though a bat squeak compared to today's panic. British scientists played a big role in alerting the world. Among the handful of Britons in the second half of the 20th century who may be remembered centuries hence is James Lovelock. He is the scientist who in 1965, after studying the long-term chemical composition of the planet's systems and their interaction with living organisms, developed the Gaia theory.
The name, from a Greek goddess, came from the British Nobel Prize-winning novelist William Golding, a neighbour of Lovelock's in Devon, during a country walk. Gaia demonstrated how fragile the life-supporting atmosphere and chemistry of the planet is, an immensely complex self-regulating system keeping temperatures fit for life. Some hippies and New Age mystics mistakenly thought Lovelock was saying the Earth was herself alive. He was using a metaphor, but one with powerful implications for man-made climate change. At the same time as Lovelock was writing his most influential book in the late 70s, far south the British Antarctic Survey was just beginning to notice a thinning of the ozone layer. It is said that when the first measurements were taken later, in 1985, the readings were so low the scientists assumed their instruments were faulty and sent home for replacements. This led to an important treaty cutting ozone-depleting CFCs. British influence was important at the first World Climate Conference in Geneva in 1979, which had appealed to nations to do more research. By 1990, a follow-up conference attended by 130 countries focused on the growing evidence that global warming was a real threat, but no agreement was reached about what should be done. Were any senior politicians worried? One was. Two years earlier, Margaret Thatcher, science-trained, had made a speech about global warming. She had been persuaded that it was a profound issue by Britain's outgoing ambassador to the United Nations, Sir Crispin Tickell, who had, ironically enough, got at her with worrying data during a long international plane flight. So, in September 1988, she had told the Royal Society that she believed it possible that we have unwittingly begun a massive experiment with the system of the Earth itself. Such was the interest that no television cameras were sent to record her speech, and the Prime Minister had to read it by the light of wax candles held over her head in an ancient hall. For most people in 1990, the environment, or green issues, meant containable local problems such as the use of chemical pesticides or the problems of disposing of nuclear waste. Books about the fate of the Earth concerned themselves with nuclear weapons. Culturally, the country was as fixated by imported American television as it would continue to be. Baywatch and The Simpsons were popular new imports and the national self-mocking strand of comedy which would be such a mark of the next 15 years was well established, with Harry Enfield's Wayne and Waynetta slob joining his loads of money attacks on the big bucks Thatcher years, spitting image puppetry at its most gleefully venomous, and the arrival of a new quiz show, Have I Got News For You. This heralded a time when interest in ideology and serious policy issues was being replaced by politics as entertainment, a stage on which humorists and hacks could prove themselves wittier than elected parliamentarians. Unsurprisingly, this would not result in a better-run country. After a spate of transport disasters, there was a widespread feeling that large investment was needed in the country's infrastructure. French and British engineers celebrated in 1990 when they met under the channel. Mobile phone use was tiny by modern standards, mainly confined to commercial business travellers' cars and a few much-mocked city slickers carrying objects the size of a brick. The computer age was further advanced. The Thatcher years had seen a glittering waterfall of new products and applications, most of them generated in California's new Silicon Valley, a hotbed of computer inventiveness recognised by name as early as 1971. The revolutionary Apple II computer had been launched in 1977, followed by Tandys, Commodores and Ataris with their floppy disks and basic games. 
The first IBM personal computer had arrived in 1981 using the unfamiliar MS-DOS operating system by a little-known company called Microsoft. The Commodore 64 of the following year would become the best-selling computer of all time, though there were British computers. Here, Sir Clive Sinclair's ZX Spectrum computer caught most of the headlines. Then, in 1983, an IBM clone arrived, the Compaq, first of countless many, and the unveiling of Microsoft Word and Windows. A year later came the first Amstrad personal computer from the British entrepreneur Alan Sugar's electronics company and, from the US, the Apple Macintosh. A cult novelist called William Gibson introduced a new word, cyberspace. By the end of the 80s, the hot new topics were virtual reality, computer gaming, SimCity was launched in 1989, and the exponentially increasing power of microprocessors. Computer graphics were becoming common in films, even though they were clunky and basic by modern standards. But the biggest about-to-happen event was the Internet itself. The single most significant achievement by a British person in the early 90s had nothing to do with politics. Sir Tim Berners-Lee, inventor of the World Wide Web, stands alongside James Lovelock for influence above that of any politician. Today's Internet is a combination of technologies, from the satellites developing from the Soviet Sputnik success of 1957 to the US military programs to link computers, leading to the early net systems developed by American universities and the personal computer revolution itself. But Berners-Lee's idea was for a worldwide hypertext, the computer-aided reading of electronic documents, to allow people to work together remotely, sharing their knowledge in a web of documents. His creation of it would give the Internet's hardware its global voice. Berners-Lee was an Oxford graduate who had made his first computer with a soldering iron and cut his teeth with British firms in Dorset before moving to the European Particle Physics Laboratory, CERN, in Switzerland in 1980. This is the world's largest research laboratory, where scientists were constantly evolving ways of communicating with one another by computer, So, it is no coincidence that it was in Switzerland that Berners-Lee wrote his first program. In 1989, he proposed his hypertext revolution, which arrived as World Wide Web, inside CERN in December 1990, and on the Internet at large the following summer. An admirably unflashy, decent man, Berners-Lee chose not to patent his creation, so that it would be free to everyone. He could have been fabulously wealthy, but preferred to live the life of a moderately salaried academic, latterly in Boston, driving a second-hand car and living quietly. He was knighted in 2004 and, two years later, warned that misinformation and undemocratic forces were spreading through the web, calling for more research on its social consequences. In the immediate aftermath of the fall of Margaret Thatcher, all this was still to come. There were articles proclaiming some kind of new computer world community taking shape, but they were confusing to most people. Would this Internet be basically for scientists? Was it a new kind of telephone-cum-typewriter or an automated library system? Nobody knew for sure. In 1990, there were no www prefixes, no dot-coms. John Ball, more interesting than he looks. To guide this confusing new Britain, teetering on the edge of a new spate of globalism, there arrived an unlikely and very English figure, a Prime Minister whose seven years in office make him one of the longest serving of modern times, but who already gets half overlooked. John Major was not what he seemed. He appeared to be a bland, friendly, loyal Thatcherite. She thought so. 
so did Tory MPs, who elected him their leader because of who he was not. He was not the urbane, posh, old-school Tory Douglas Hurd, and he was not the floppy-haired enchanter and lady-killer Michael Heseltine. So, who was he? Major had none of Thatcher's certainty or harshness. It is a reasonable principle that when you probe the history of a normal, middle-of-the-road English person, you find it surprisingly exotic. That is the case with Major. He was a sensitive boy from the wrong part of town, from a mixed-up, rather rum family. His father was one of the music hall artists described much earlier in this book, a remarkable man who had been partly brought up in the United States, returning to Britain in Edwardian times to pursue a long stage career, then rampaging cheerfully round South America, marrying twice and producing two illegitimate children. His name was Tom Ball. The Major was a stage name. As John Major said later, he might more properly have been named John Ball, like the leader of the Peasants' Revolt against the original poll tax. Major was born late. His father was already an old man, now pursuing yet another career, making garden ornaments. When an informal business deal went wrong, he lost almost everything, and the family moved from their comfortable suburban house to a crowded flat in Brixton, which they shared with a cat burglar, a Jamaican later arrested for stabbing a policeman, and a trio of cheery Irish tax dodgers. The flat turned out to be owned by Major's much older secret half-brother, though he never knew this at the time. Methodist Grantham this was not. Major, infuriated at being saddled with the name Major Ball when he was sent to grammar school, was a poor pupil and left at sixteen. His early life was ragged and formless in shape. He worked as a clerk, made garden gnomes with his brother, looked after his mother and endured a degrading time of unemployment, before eventually pursuing a career as a banker and becoming a conservative councillor. Unlike Margaret Thatcher, his politics were formed by the inner city, and he was on the anti-Powellite moderate wing of the party. After a long search, he was finally selected as Tory candidate for the rural seat of Huntingdon, and entered Parliament in 1979 as the Thatcher age began. There he rose almost without trace, through a minor job with the Home Office, to the Whip's Office, which, as the internal security machine of a parliamentary party, can be a useful training ground for the ambitious, to two years at Social Security. After the 1987 election, Thatcher promoted him to the Cabinet as Chief Secretary to the Treasury, when he haggled with ministers about their spending plans. She liked him because he had stood up to her in argument, not because he was a stooge. There followed the abrupt further promotions to the Foreign Office, where he served as Foreign Secretary for all of 94 days, and Treasury. As Chancellor, he had promoted a short-lived alternative to monetary union, the hard ecu, which would have been a kind of voluntary euro, running alongside the old currencies. He had then won Thatcher round to membership of the ERM, though entering, as it turned out, at too high a rate. By the time he suddenly emerged as a possible candidate to replace her as Prime Minister, Major was known by those who knew him for being affable, reliable, hard-working, self-deprecating and, it was assumed, as her protégé, a model Thatcherite. But to everyone outside Tory politics, he was a blank canvas. He was the least known new Prime Minister in post-war Britain, as well as the youngest of the century so far. At 47, he was barely a public figure. Most Conservatives had grown sick and tired of dramatics. 
Here was a bloke from next door with an easy smile, leading them to easier times. Chris Patton, then the brightest man in the cabinet, acted as its spokesman when he recalled the prisoners' chorus to freedom in Beethoven's opera Fidelio. If only they knew what was coming. Thatcher, belatedly slightly wary, promised to be a good backseat driver. Major wanted none of her advice. He considered offering her a job, either in the cabinet or as ambassador to Washington. He decided not to. He talked of building a society of opportunity and compassion, and for privileges once available to the few to be spread to the many. This sounds like an early tryout for the language of new labour. Major came to believe Blair had simply swiped many of his ideas and presented them as his own with more verve. As we shall see, there is some truth in this. But Major had little time to plan his own agenda. There were immediate crises. He was quick to kill off the poll tax and replace it with a new council tax, bearing an uncommon resemblance to the old rating system. He was equally quick to meet the elder President Bush and support him through the Gulf War. Above all, he had to turn straight away to confront the great hydra-headed monster that was devouring his party, the federal agenda of Jacques Delors. If ever a place was well chosen for debating the end of a Europe of independent nation-states, it was Maastricht in Holland an attractive cobbled town nestled so close to the German and Belgian borders it is almost nationless. Here, the great showdown of winter 1991 took place. A new treaty was to be agreed, and it was one which made the federal project ever more explicit. There was to be fast progress to a single currency. Much of foreign policy, defence policy and home affairs were to come under the ultimate authority of the EU. A social chapter would oblige Britain to accept the more expensive work guarantees of the continent and surrender some of the trade union reforms brought in under Thatcher. For a country with a weak industrial base whose economy partly depended on undercutting her continental rivals, all this would be grave. For a Conservative Party, which had applauded Lady Thatcher's defiant bruise speech, it was almost a declaration of war in which Europe's federal destiny had been made explicit and imminent. Fretting and moody in exile, Thatcher saw Maastricht as a recipe for national suicide. She now believed she had been removed from Downing Street because of her stand over Europe. Hearing Major declare he wanted Britain to be at the heart of Europe, a mere bromide of a phrase, she added him to the long list of traitors. Her admirers hissed. He refused to rule out a single currency for all time. They began angrier still. So did she. Major was trying to be practical, not exciting. He decided that he had no absolutist views on the single currency. One day it would happen. It had obvious business and trading advantages, but now was too soon, partly because it would make life harder for the Central European countries being freed from communism to join the EU. So he was neither a never nor a now. Most people assumed he was glibly steering between two whirlpools, trying to keep his party united. In his memoirs, a great deal better written than most such books, he protested that he was accused of dithering, procrastination, lacking leadership and conviction. As to his true and subtle position, I have given up hope that this will ever be understood. Yet, at Maastricht, he managed, against all the odds, during genuinely tense negotiations, to slip Britain out of paying fealty to the EU on most of what was demanded. He and his Chancellor, Norman Lamont, negotiated a special British opt-out from Monetary Union and managed to have the social chapter excluded from the treaty altogether. Major kept haggling late and on every detail, wearing out his fellow leaders with more politeness but as much determination as Thatcher ever had.
For a man with a weak hand under fire from his own side at home, it was quite a feat. Major returned to hosannas in the newspapers and the widely reported remark of an aide that it was game, set, and match to Britain. He was briefly a hero. He described his reception by the Tory party and the Commons as the modern equivalent of a Roman triumph, quite something for the boy from Brixton. Soon after this, flushed with confidence, Major called the election most observers thought he must lose. The economy was so badly awry, the pain of the poll tax so fresh, the Labour Party of Neil Kinnock now so efficiently and ruthlessly organised that the Tory years were surely ending. Things turned out differently. Lamont's pre-election budget had helped a lot. It proposed cutting the bottom rate of income tax by five pence in the pound, which would help people on lower incomes and badly wrong-footed labour. Under a pugnacious pattern, now the party chairman, the Tories targeted Labour's enthusiasm for higher taxes. It was tough stuff. Patton called himself the Liberal Thug. During the campaign itself, Major found himself returning to his roots in Brixton, mounting a soapbox, in fact, a plastic container, from which he addressed raucous crowds through a megaphone. This stark contrast to the careful control of the Labour campaign struck a chord with the media, and he kept it up, playing the underdog to the Kinnock's government in waiting. Right at the end, at an eve of the poll rally in Sheffield, Kinnock's self-control finally gave way, and he began punching the air with delight, crying, "You're right." This is often said to have finally turned Middle England against him. That seems a bit neat. On the ninth of April, nineteen ninety-two, Major's Conservatives won fourteen million votes, more than any party in British political history. It was a great personal achievement, also based on people's fear of higher labour taxes. It was also one of the biggest percentage leads since nineteen forty-five, though the vagaries of the electoral system gave Major a majority of just twenty-one seats. Kinnock was devastated and quickly left frontline politics, but never. Has such a famous victory produced such a rotten result for the winners? Patton lost his seat in Bath and went on to become the final governor of Hong Kong, tussling with the Chinese ahead of the long-agreed handover of Britain's last proper colony. Despite the popular vote, the smallness of the majority meant Major's authority was now steadily eaten away. He has not gone down in history as a great leader of this country, but under a parliamentary system, greatness is generally related to parliamentary arithmetic. What kind of revolutionary would Margaret Thatcher have been had she had a majority of twenty-one in 1979 or 1983? Nor were the economics propitious. Had Labour won in 1992, it would have been quickly tarnished too. The choice of governing in that year was what rugby players call a hospital pass. For now, John Major, the delighted and much relieved victor, had the slippery ball in his hands and was acknowledging the cheers of the crowds. Meanwhile. A platoon of nasty-looking, bone-crushing twenty-stone forwards were just about to jump him. Old Labour's lost king. The story of modern British political life has, so far, thrown up a high proportion of nuts, or at least of unsettled people with something to prove. John Smith was not a nut. After Neil Kinnock gave up in despair following Major's victory in 1992. He was replaced by a placid, secure, self-certain Scottish lawyer with a very boring name. Today, almost everyone has an interest in writing John Smith out of the history books. For the Blairites, he was the timid, grey background for the heroic drama of modernisation about to unfold. 
For those who loved Kinnock, he was the election-losing shadow chancellor. For the Tories, he was an embarrassingly good parliamentary inquisitor. In politics, predictions about what will happen a month ahead are dangerous, but though Smith died of a heart attack in 1994, three years ahead of an election, it is fairly safe to suggest that, after the tarnishing years of the mid-90s, he would have become Prime Minister. Had he done so, Britain would have had a traditionalist social democratic government, much closer to those of continental Europe, and our history would have been different. Smith came from a family of herring fishermen on the west coast of Scotland, and, though bald as a coot himself, was the son of a bristly small-town headmaster known as Harry Smith. Labour supporting from his earliest days, bright and self-assured, he got his real political education at Glasgow University, part of a generation of brilliant student debaters from all parties who would go on to dominate Scottish politics. Back in the early 60s, Glasgow University Labour Club was a hotbed not of radicals, but of Gateskill-supporting moderates. It was a position Smith never wavered from, as he rose through politics as one of the brightest stars of the Scottish party. And then through government, under Wilson and Callaghan, as a junior minister dealing with the oil industry and devolution, before entering the cabinet just in time as president of the Board of Trade, its youngest member at 40. In opposition, he managed to keep at arm's length from the worst of the infighting. He and Tony Benn liked one another, despite their very different views, after working together at the Energy Department, and eventually became Kinnock's shadow chancellor. He was a good lawyer and a brilliantly forensic parliamentary operator. This won him acclaim in the Westminster village, even if, in Thatcher's England, he was spotted as a tax-raising, corporatist socialist of the old school. One letter he got briskly informed him, You'll not get my BT shares yet, you bald owl-looking Scottish bastard. Go back to Scotland and let the other twit Kinnock go back to Wales. Smith came from a somewhat old-fashioned Christian egalitarian background, which put him naturally out of sympathy with the materialist, pleasure-orientated and aspirational culture that had grown so vigorously in Thatcherite England. Just before he became leader, he told a newspaper he believed above all in education because it opens the doors of the imagination, breaks down class barriers and frees people. In our family, money was looked down on and education was revered. I am still slightly contemptuous of money. This could not, in all honesty, be said of the man who replaced him. Smith was never personally close to Kinnock, but scrupulously loyal. A convivial, not drunken, workaholic who ate too much, he nevertheless succeeded him by an overwhelming vote in 1992. By then he had, with great good luck, survived a major heart attack and taken up hill-walking. The sun, not always a good guide to the future, greeted his triumph with the eerily accurate and predictive headline, He's fat, he's 53, he's had a heart attack, and he's taking on a stress-loaded job. Though Smith swiftly advanced the careers of the brightest younger stars, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, they swiftly became depressed by his style of leadership. He did not believe Labour needed to be transformed, merely improved. He was reluctant at first to take on the party over issues such as one-person-one-vote internal democracy. He had an instantaneous dislike of the Mephistopheles of the modernizers Peter Mandelson, which may have been tinged with Scottish Presbyterian homophobia. Blair, Brown and Mandelson thought Smith was smug and idle. He, on the other hand, was equally sure they were making too much fuss and that Labour could regain power with something of its traditional spirit. A little-known newspaper journalist called Alistair Campbell divided the party into two camps, the Frantics, led by Brown, Blair and Jack Straw, and the Long Gamers, led by Smith. 
At one point, Blair was contemplating leaving politics, so despairing was he of Smith's leadership. He should, he reflected, have stuck to the law, where his elder brother was doing so well. What was there in politics for him? Smith died of a second heart attack on the 12th of May, 1994. After the initial shock and grieving had finished, Labour moved rapidly away from his legacy. There is, however, one part of the Smith agenda which survived intact and is a big influence on the shape of Britain today. As the minister who had struggled to achieve devolution for Scotland in the dark years of 1978-79, to he remained a passionate supporter of the unfinished business of establishing a Scottish Parliament and Welsh Assembly. With his friend Donald Dewar, he had committed Labour so utterly to the idea in opposition that Blair, no particular fan of devolution, found this one part of old Labour's agenda that stuck and had to be implemented later. Black Wednesday and Party Suicide The crisis that now engulfed the Conservative government was a complicated, devilish interaction of themes, but in other ways very simple. The first thing that happened was that they lost their economic policy in a single day when the pound fell out of the European exchange rate mechanism. Major's opening words in the chapter of his book that deals with this are a fair summary. Black Wednesday, 16th of September, 1992. The day the pound toppled out of the ERM was a political and economic calamity. It unleashed havoc in the Conservative Party and it changed the political landscape of Britain. It is worth recalling just what the ERM was and why it mattered so much in the early 90s. Europe's old currencies, the marks, francs, lira, crowns and the rest, were supposed to move in close alignment, like a flight of mismatched aircraft in tight formation. They would stick together against outsider currencies, notably the US dollar, behaving almost as if they were one currency. Speculators would not be able to drive them apart. Eventually, they would fuse and become one, which is where the aircraft analogy falls down, because so would the aircraft. The strongest currency by far was the German Deutschmark, so the rest followed it up and down. End of Disc 18